Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, everyone, good morning. So glad that you're here this morning, and welcome to everyone watching online and everyone up in Port Perry. We're glad you're with us, too. We, of course, want to welcome you to our new ministry year, and what a year we have before us as a church family. I'd like to take a moment uh, to begin by reminding all of us as a community of what we do to prepare for a year like this. As most of you know, every year before we enter into another year, we take time in the previous year to stop and to listen and ask God what he would like us to hear, what he would want to do with us as a church. So last year, we took some very intentional time to listen, to fast, to pray, and God spoke. And there was one word that emerged out of those times of prayer and listening for us as a community this year, and it was the word obedience. Now, the word was not harsh, the word was not rebuke, the word was not condemnation, The word was invitation in tone. There was a grand sense for us as leaders that this season, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was calling us, one God calling us to a growing inward obedience and a growing outward obedience. There was an invitation for us to grow in a deeper way internally as we are living more and more in a culture that is going decidedly in any direction but that. There's an invitation for holiness, and the reason why this is such a beautiful, ongoing invitation by God is it leads to freedom. Yet as we were hearing this phrase, obedience, like I just said, it was not just inward, it was forward. As we hear this call to obey, as we move out where God is asking us to go as a whole family, a deepening obedience inwardly and a willing obedience for us together as a walk, to walk together as a family forward. So again, I just want to stop as we get going, and I want you to hear once again the words that you just heard in the video. We're pilgrims on a journey, a holy journey seeking the kingdom. We are pioneers taking new ground given to us under the authority of Jesus, a representation of the kingdom, changing culture, living differently, exposing darkness and radiating light. We will not settle for what is common or just good. Our standard is righteousness and love and purity and holy and holiness and consecration and obedience, this great inward and this great forward move. Now, I want, as this is the beginning of our ministry year, just to remind all of us about our calling. I want to remind all of us, no matter who you are, what our mission is. The reason why C4 exists is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is why we gather. That is why we give. This is why we do everything that we do. And our God-given vision is just as clear. Our God-given task and assignment is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. And so with those things in front of us and this invitation to go inward and forward, let me just take a moment to talk about this coming year. Over the last few years, we have seen things we've never seen before. Like I said in June when Dave was with me, we have baptized 400 people in four years. We've seen more growth, more salvations, more moves of God than we actually have ever recorded or seen in our 35 years of history. And now this year we are standing here, or you're sitting here, but we're gathering together, getting ready to step out. And this year is going to be quite a profound year. We're sending a team into Bangladesh as a community to learn and sit with our global partners who are in an unbelievably difficult situation to learn how we can support them, but also learn from them as they are trying to give the good news of Jesus in an overly Muslim country. 
In the next four weeks, I think you all know it because we've been talking about it, the Global Alpha Campaign is about to launch across the whole of the GTA. I'm sure you've seen signs on buses and on billboards, on subways, on Facebook, on Instagram, even on your own games when you're trying to game, they're popping up. We're everywhere. We're hunting everyone. And like we've been sharing, over 100 churches are going to, in the next four weeks, I want you to think about this, invite tens of thousands of people to struggle and see if Christianity is true. This is the largest invitation to explore Christian, the Christian faith in the GTA in the last 25 plus years. And, and you may not know this, it's also launching in London, in Ottawa, it's launching also on the East Coast. There's going to be a span of 8 million people in the next eight weeks that will be invited to explore Jesus. I'm really excited this morning to announce that we are going to be launching between 12 and 14 different expressions of Alpha just in C4 in the next four weeks. And our goal is to see 250 people join us as seekers and skeptics to explore Jesus. And let me just say to all of us this morning, who are you praying for and who are you inviting? And then if that isn't enough, Bangladesh and this large alpha thing and us starting our year, then we've been talking about and praying and excited about the East Durham site. And we've prayed for a site pastor and God gave us Matt, who's been giving leadership. And then you might not know this over the summer, our staff has done such uh, such an amazing group of work trying to find the right site. And we are actually excited to announce this morning, we have a place and we have a date. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're excited to announce today we are going to be taking over Bowmanville High School, uh, which is great. It has a 600-seat auditorium. Yeah, you can clap about that. It's uh, the center of town. It's a known location. Great rooms for welcoming people. Great space for our kids' ministry. And so we're going to be doing that now with multiple sites. Thinking about how we're growing into the future, we've now decided to make some changes. And it's just important as we start a year that we all get this together. We're now going to be calling our names uh, local names, geographical names, while doing ministry regionally. So in the spirit of that, we will now have C4 Bowmanville. Uh, North Durham will now be called C4 Port Perry. We'll continue to refer to this site is C4 Ajax. Now, we've been talking a lot about the East site, and we said we're going to launch sometime in the winter of 2018, but we are also excited to announce today that C4 Bowmanville will be officially launching on January 28th as a full C4 experience. And so we've got a time and a place, and I hope we're all ready to go because we're doing this. So with Mission, you can clap about that. That's great. It's exciting. We're really excited. So with our mission in front of us once again, for our vision in front of us, for the personal and communal walk with Jesus we're all responsible for, with these next major steps and our new theme, which you've just seen, plus everything else we're going to be doing, here's the question we need to ask on this Vision Sunday. Well, what to do, where to go, what to think, what is next for you personally, what's next for us as a church and for our region. Well, I'd like to take a moment to start with our theme. For most of us, when we hear the phrase pilgrims or pioneers, It's foreign, it seems old, irrelevant, you feel like some weird thing of turkey and cowboys in some old movie, or or some long-lost time we don't understand. And also in a world where we have so much access to so much information, is there any place we can actually really explore or pioneer or go? See, all seems explored, all seems understood because we have Wikipedia and everything else. So instead, in our culture, we are left with something different. Most of us never think in the idea of pilgrimage or pioneering anymore. We just think in the context of vacations. But I love when one author made a great, insightful article when he wrote the difference between vacations and pilgrimage. Let let me just break it down for you. He said, you know, vacations are self-chosen. Vacations 
When you think about them, the destination is an escape from reality. Travel is incidental to vacation. The mode of transport is irrelevant. It's about self-consuming things. You vacation so you can eat that food. You vacation so you can drink that whatever you drink. You vacation so you can escape whoever. Like it's going somewhere to consume something. But actually, pilgrimage is fundamentally different. Pilgrimage is a response to a call. Pilgrimage, actually, when you think about it, the destination is ultimate reality. For pilgrimage, the journey is essential part of the process, and the way you actually travel must actually keep in, uh, keep in keeping with the final destination. And pilgrimage is actually about we being consumed by the all-consuming holiness of God. See, we need to recapture pilgrimage and pioneering because our only understanding in our culture is a vacation. Do you see the difference? So if there's any part of the Bible that brings all of this together, obedience, freedom, pilgrimage, pioneering, God testing our motive, uh, his supernatural amazing provision, his commands, and how it ties with mission, vision, our next steps, our walk with Jesus, it is a little section in the book of Exodus where Israel has just been freed. They just wandered into the wilderness, but it's before they get the Ten Commandments. So if you've got a Bible this morning in any form, would you turn to Exodus 16? And for the next three weeks, we're to be in Exodus for a reason. Now, we're entering the story here this morning. Mere months, maybe a month and a half, have passed since the literal Exodus event. Ten plagues took place. The Red Sea was split. God drowned part of the Egyptian army. And for the first time in 420 years, the Jewish people are actually free for the very first time. And actually, if you read Exodus, there's an amazing prayer moment that takes place among the people. Since they are free for the first time, they have a worship gathering and all these new songs actually are written. And in chapter 15, one of those songs is recorded because they are so excited by God's liberating and loving act. But then as they walk into the wilderness, after this great worship moment, reality sets in. Just like marriage and post-dating and honeymoon, suddenly when you get home, reality comes home very quickly that you're stuck with this person and they're very different than you. So now God's people are with God in a new marriage-like situation, and reality sets in. We're about 30 days in since the actual splitting of the Red Sea. Food is beginning to run out. The water situation is dangerous. The people are scared, and they're angry, and they're wondering, and they're wandering. Now, only a few days later, if you know the Exodus account, there was a crisis around water because the water was running out, and they were starting to complain. And they found water in the middle of this desert, but it was poisoned water. It was not sweet water. And God actually made it good and he saved the whole family again. But no matter, no matter that God had done that or split the Red Sea, now reality sets in again and everything within seconds turns unbelievably ugly. We enter the story here in Exodus 16.1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. And in the desert, the whole community began grumbling against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to these leaders, if we had only died by God's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out here into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, okay, what happened? I mean, what changed? When did abuse and slavery and when did wholesale human trafficking and no freedom and humans being treated like animals and death become Disney World with clean streets and great food and justice for all and fun for the whole family? When did they start thinking that the waters of the Nile were so amazing when that very river used to be filled with their own little babies that were being systematically murdered by the command of Pharaoh so there would not be more men to cause revolt in the future? Can you imagine Moses hearing this? 
For he himself was actually almost murdered, and he floated in that very river, and he was barely spared. And since when has suddenly Egypt become like Mandarin for the whole world, the best buffet ever for everyone? See, it happened when they had nothing left to support them except God. In that moment, they stopped trusting God. They, they stopped looking to God when they looked everywhere else. And most distressing, when they looked back to Egypt, then everything fell apart. And the pattern, of course, has been repeated in many of our lives, has been repeated throughout the scriptures. It was Asfa, the great, actually, psalmist who, who sort of worked the psalms with David and others, who recorded this in his own journey in Psalm 73, when he said, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are always healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always free from care. Always going on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. When I tried to understand all of this, it deeply troubled me until... Until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. And see, this is the whole point. The people of God, when they stopped looking at God, were left with themselves, and panic ensued. But what we're seeing here is when you look back and see who God was, and you look in the now and see who God is, and you know who he is going to be, panic is always removed when your eyes are focused on God. And God is saying in this moment to the Israelites, my beloved children, the way that leads you actually back to Egypt is slavery and death. Love me as you just once did a month and a half ago. Do not envy. Do not look back. Don't look to the left and don't look to the right. And please stop looking at yourselves. Look up and no love. Look up and no holiness. Look up and no freedom. Again, let me ask the question that's on our minds. Why did they look back and invent a place that did not exist? How in the world in a month and a half did they become so foolish or you might say stupid or ignorant? How did they just not, how did they get there? Well, the answer actually is interesting. It's because they were slaves. Because the people of God had been slaves for 420 years. It was actually their frame of mind. That's all they knew. It was weirdly safe. They had a love-hate relationship with Egypt. It's like going back to an abusive spouse over and over again. Even though you know when you return to that spouse, it will be terrible. Since you know that and that is all you know, you return. It is like if you have struggles, and some of you have had historic struggles with alcohol or drugs or other things. When you go to those places, it is comforting to you, even though you know it brings destruction. And hear what they say to God. You, through your leaders, have brought us out here to die, and there is no difference in the wilderness. Risk, the known, comfort, has more power than God and his promises. And, and many of us sitting here today think we would actually do this so much better. We think, well, you know, I would never make that decision. But deeper than that, many of us who have been Christians for a while, we've said these words. We just say, well, if God was just physically with me, if Jesus was walking with me physically every single day, I would trust him and everything would be fine. But see, that's the point. God, in this passage, is physically among his people by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God is there, and yet it's not enough. Years ago, I read a story that brings this struggle home with such power. I quoted it probably five years ago. Several generations ago, a person wrote, during one of the worst desert wars in the Middle East, a spy was captured and sentenced to death by a general of the Persian army. 
The general was a man of intelligence and compassion. He adopted a very strange and unusual custom in such cases. He permitted the condemned person to make a choice. The prisoner could face a firing squad or pass through a black door. As the moment of the execution would draw near, the general ordered the spy to be brought before him. They'd have a short final interview for the primary purpose of understanding what the spy's decision was. What shall it be? Will it be the firing squad or the black door? This was never an easy decision, and the prisoner would always hesitate, but soon he made it known, in this case, he'd prefer the firing squad to the unknown horrors that might await him behind this ominous and mysterious door. Not long after, a volley of shots was heard in the courtyard, and it announced the grim sentence had been fulfilled. The general was sitting in his office, staring at his boots, and the aide turned to him and said, what's wrong? And the general said back to the aide, well, you know, this is what it's like with all men. They always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of all people to be defrayed, afraid of the undefined. Yet I gave him a choice. Well, the aide said, well, what is behind the black door? Well, freedom, the general replied. And I've only known a few who are ever even willing to take it. See, the path to the promised land is through the desert. The path to the promised land is through fear. The path of the promised land is through unknowing. The path of the promise to the promised land, this idea of pilgrimage and pioneering is fundamentally based on one thing. Can you and do you believe that God is trustworthy? And, and by the way, interestingly in the passage, how does God respond to his people? Does, how does God respond to the ungratefulness of his people? Their sin, let's call it for what it is, anger and wrath and fine, I'll send you back to that hellhole you call heaven. No, he's not harsh. He doesn't bring judgment. He actually is incredibly kind. It says in verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go at each day and gather enough food for that day. In this way, I'll test them and see whether they're going to follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days because of the Sabbath. So this is when the idea of manna is introduced. Maybe you don't know that. It's where we get our phrase daily bread from, which Jesus refers to in the Lord's Prayer. For the very first time, these people, think about it, did not have to work for their food. For the first time in 420 years, gift replaces hard, unrelenting, unpaid labor, and God gives them the gift in the middle of their lack of trust and their anger and their grumbling and actually their rebellion. For the first time, God says, I'll provide what you just need today. Now, notice this this morning. The bread is not the test. The amount is. Will the people of God obey God's instructions? Will they trust him? God's food is a gift. This gracious provision of good food must not be hoarded. God's people, he's teaching them, are called to be in a forever state of dependence on him. Now they must learn that they are God's family and they are God's servants and they're no longer slaves and they get to serve him and God is going to be a good father and provide for them and they are to trust him every single day. It's like wedding vows are being established here. This shared agreement keeps the relationship healthy and together. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it is the Lord who's brought you out of Egypt. I love that, that they have to repeat that after the 10 plagues and the Red Sea and all that, but okay. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should be grumbling against us? Moses said. You will know that it's the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? We're not, you're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against God. Now Moses stops and very pastorally is saying to the people of God, okay, listen, I know you're scared. 
And I know you're fearful and I know you're worrying a little bit, but by the way, as you're getting incredibly angry, you're taking it out on us, but I need to remind you we're actually not the culprit. God is the one who brought us out, not us. And by the way, I want to remind you, God is about to give us bread every morning and quail every evening. There's going to be no more hungry, hunger. Every single day, we as the people of God are going to see a known, obvious, shocking miracle every single day. God is the one who's brought us out of Egypt. He's the one who's answered our prayers because you asked for 420 years for this. Now he answered it. God is our literal redeemer. The God of the universe has introduced himself to us. The God uh, of our ancestors did all those 10 plagues and you're complaining to us, but really it's him. So would you please be careful? I just want to remind you, he's God. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Now, this is one of the most amazing things in this whole passage I never caught. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. What does God do? Not only does he promise bread and also meat, and he's given water, he does something else. God in his love, catch this this morning, God in his love literally, physically turns his whole family to look east, looking straight into the desert, not westward, back to Egypt. He physically moves them away from the thing they're longing for, which brings death. And he makes them face the wilderness, the desert. No promised land is on the horizon, not even close to it. But there in the unknown and there in the uncomfortable and there in that very desert, there in the place where pilgrimage is experienced and pioneering is called for, there is where God's palpable presence is. They look and they see God. That glory is what the theologians call the Shekinah glory of God. And notice it's not a cloud, it's the cloud. It's not like, oh, cumulus. No, 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 no. This cloud, if you read the descriptions in the scripture, is the presence of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It is a cloud filled with lightning and fire. And it has actually been walking in front of the people of God the whole time and walked behind them when the Egyptians tried murdering them. It's the same glory and the same cloud that's seen at the Ten Commandments, at the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple. It's the same fire that will come down and consume the altar when Elijah faces down the Baal prophets. It's the same glory that Ezekiel and Isaiah are consumed by when they're called. It's the same glory that shines around the shepherds when the angels sang and announced the birth of Jesus. Christmas is coming, just want to say it. It's the same power that overshadowed Mary and actually allowed the virgin birth to take place. It's the same fire that fell at Pentecost that birthed the local church. It's the same fire and the same glory that Stephen looked up to and saw Jesus in the middle of when he died as the first Christian martyr. It's the same glory and the same fire that knocked Saul down and he became the Apostle Paul. See, this is the literal palpable presence of God. And God in his love takes his people and says, don't look to Pharaoh anymore and don't look to Egypt anymore. It is not what you think it is. Look upon me and you will be saved. Now the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. So you tell them at twilight, you will eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. You will know that I am God because I love you. So that evening, quail came and covered the whole tent, the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp, and when the dew was gone, thin white flakes like frost covered across the whole desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, well, what is this? They did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, this is the bread of God he has given you to eat. And this is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. 
Take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. Then Moses said, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept it till morning. It was full of maggots and began to smell. How lovely. And if you keep reading down, it says again and again and again, the people of God consumed it, did not obey. And at the end, God says, why will these people not obey my simple instructions? I want you to see the pattern. God saves, God provides, God gives, God loves, God tests, God gives again. And the people of God with his very presence do not trust him. They do not believe him. They do not have faith in him. They do not have confidence in him. They do not choose to rely on him daily. So back and forth this relationship goes. And in the middle of that, God keeps saying that, saving them daily. And then there's another crisis. As they are moving along, there's another water shortage. Now, I can understand the panic. I think we all can. Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of people, or maybe over a million, depending on what scholar you read, having no water? Yet God has already provided everything else, including water. But it says in Genesis 17, 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert sin and traveling to place to place as the Lord commanded. He was literally leading them. But it says, but when they arrived, there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Talk about an impossible situation for a leader. Now notice, they've moved from grumbling to quarreling and fighting now to threatening. And as we're about to see, murder is now actually starting to lurk among God's people against Moses. Moses replied, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you putting God to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Anyone been hungry before and not acted the way they should when they're hungry? Anyone want to raise their hand? Not one of you. You're all liars. All of us don't act well when we're hungry. All of us don't act well when we're thirsty. And this community, though that, remember, God's presence is literally standing among them. And they have been actually, they're still, as they're complaining, getting quail and manna. They've picked it up and saying, you've brought us out here to die. And God doesn't love us. How many times? Again, they're doing what Pharaoh did, testing God, not trusting God, not obeying God. And Moses didn't bring them out. God did. This, by the way, I want to remind you, this crisis in Genesis 17 is 50 days, a month and a half after the Red Sea was split and the army was drowned by the hand of God. This is not even two months in yet, and yet they are now saying, you did this, we're all going to die, and life is terrible, and it's not worth the risk. So Moses did what all leaders do. He goes before God and he cries out, what am I to do with these people? Notice the next phrase. They're ready to stone me. Like this is really serious. And God answered Moses, go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile and go. And I, notice this, I'd never caught this before. And I, this is God speaking. I, God, will stand before you by the rock at Horeb and strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And here's the point. God is the Lord of the desert, just like he's the Lord of Egypt, just like he's the Lord of all things. Egypt was dangerous. The desert is dangerous, but God is still in control. God is not scared. God is not overcome. And God is always willing to continue to give. And he says, look, just look forward. Look to the Lord. Don't look at each other and don't look back. How can you say the Lord is not among you? Now, I think many of us would know that this group of real historical events 
that took place and was valuable in its day also was preparing the world for something more. This was shadow. This was preparation for what most of us have experienced fully today. Meals between God and his people are always signs of salvation. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. Our Egypt as human beings is slavery to sin, Satan, and death. And in Jesus, we have a full and final exodus. See, Jesus' words and Jesus' claims only make sense when you understand the background. One of the most profound claims of Jesus is found in John six thirty-five. Jesus declared, I am the manna, the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Me, he's saying, I'm actually the food and the substance and the nourishment for the soul and the body. It's me. It's no mistake, Jesus was saying, I was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. For even the place where I am born points to not only why I've come, but who I am. See, Jesus declares these phrases, I am the bread of life. And we need to never forget that there are seven I am statements in John. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to Yahweh except through me. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. All of these are nothing less than an outrageous claim of Jesus claiming to be God himself. Because when Moses met with God in the desert and said to God, what shall I call you? He says, I am. And Jesus comes along years later and says, I am the bread of life. I am not only the God that Moses walked with, I am also the great provider of everything. I am the man of life. I'm the giver of water. Any Orthodox Jew hearing this in John's time would understand he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the ultimate salvation out of Egypt. He is manna. He is water. He is. I love when one pastor wrote, the manna typifies Jesus so well. When it fell, it was white like snow, just like Christ is without blemish or imperfection. Manna was accessible, he writes. That's one of its main virtues. And as a person could walk outside his tent or camp to gather it, he had a choice. He could step on it or pick it up. So the same with Jesus. We can step on him or take him up as Savior. Now, this is one of the most preached on passages probably in the Scriptures. And the question we all need to be asking is, why this passage, why today, and what's the point? Well, number one, as we're about to step forward to become a church we've never become before, as we're about to enter and invite Toronto to explore Jesus with all of that, listen, as we're about to do all of this, let alone our own personal walks and life and family and jobs, there has to be some vows made among us with God, some decisions that we make. Either we reaffirm our vows or we say them for the first time. And here's the first thing, C4, as we're called forward this year, none of us has permission to go back to Egypt. There's an invitation by God to this church to go inward and to go outward. Sometimes, though, if we're honest, if we were having a real good, honest moment, we personally think, or sometimes maybe as a church, we think, I want to go back to slavery. I I hated it, but I'm used to it. Or let's just have the honest chat, sin is fun, sin is easy. It's too hard to look to God every day. It's too hard to give up my pride. It's, it's just too, it's too hard to be a Christian at work. It's easier not to trust God. I might love him, but trust him? Mm. Now, the people of God in the Exodus account knew God. God knew them. He loved them. He had provided for them. His presence was in front of them, and they were in, but by their actions said, I still want you at a distance. Their hearts were partially with him. 
This is a both end mentality. We can retain some of our slavery mentality from Egypt and also be the new people of God. We can have the benefits of faith and salvation, but not trust. In other words, let's all have a prenup with God. And if you don't work out, I still keep my stuff and I can go somewhere else. How many of us, doesn't matter how long we've been with Jesus, have said we're in, we're comfortable, but I can live between two worlds, have my cake and eat it too, fully believe in all that God says, and yet maybe not. By the way, you'll know if this is true in your walk, if again, you keep saying quietly to yourself or boldly, I think God got this one wrong in the Bible. You're already on your way back to Egypt. Here's another question I probably should ask. Whoever you are, I have no clue who are you, are you actually preparing to walk away? Is doubt evolving into skepticism? Are you beginning to walk? Have you actually said just God's wrong on that or, or, or actually I just can't trust him or he didn't come through in the timing I thought he should? By the way, this is God's moment for you if you're that person. God is saying, my beloved, my child, the place, the alternative actually does not lead to life. Love me as you once did. Don't envy. Don't look back. Don't look to the left or right. Do not let yourself look to our culture that is broken and marred and tainted. It won't last. Look up and know love and holiness and know freedom. Do not prefer bitter food and slavery. Trust me. In other words, do not call sin beautiful. It never is. We are called to be pioneers and involved in a holy pilgrimage. And actually, we're no longer slaves. We sing songs in this church like we're no longer slaves. But it's fine to sing a song like that. It's another thing not to act like one anymore. And I think we all need to make the vow, the commitment to our God who's loved us so much through Jesus by his spirit that we say to him, I will not go back to Egypt. I will not do it. Because there is no way we can pilgrimage together to encounter God and pioneer new ground if we keep looking back and wondering if the Nile is better than the water God is about to provide in front of us. So the first thing I want us to think about as we start a new year is are we willing to reaffirm our vows with God and say to him, not Egypt, but you. Let me speak to all of you personally, to myself, as just people, not us as a community. The second commitment we need to make together with joy, by the way, is that we choose to look to the hand of God for our provision this year as we pilgrim. Daily bread. Trusting God daily. God wants to remind us that actually the reason why we need to do this is to learn how to trust him. One person said the problem was not that the Israelites failed the test, but they actually put God to the test. This is why Jesus, in that great prayer, the ultimate prayer, we are commanded as we pray the Lord's Prayer every day to actually pray for daily bread. And what does daily bread mean, by the way? It means basic needs. God, provide my clothing. God, provide my shelter. God, here are all the life issues I'm going through. Family, friends, life, job, fill in the blank. Here they are. And then, oh, godliness. I want to live a holy life. And oh, you know, all of it. But why is it important to pray it? Why is it important to sort of rhythm it? Why is it important to do it? Because the posture of daily bread, praying it and meaning it, confronts the idea that any of us sitting in this room or anyone online is the master of his own destiny or her destiny, that we actually believe I can deal with my life or my family or church or my godliness by myself. No. This prayer moves us from self-trust and self-sufficiency to trusting in God and calls us for utter dependence, for salvation, life, godliness, everything. This is essential for pilgrimage. It's essential for pioneering. 
So let me just say this again. This is not a downer. This is actually an invitation to the thing we already believe and the person that we already love. Number one, we make the vow commitment. I'm not going back to Egypt. And as if I'm preaching right now, some of you are going, actually, I was already heading back in this place or that place. That's when we say no when we repent. We all make the decision today that we're going to start praying daily bread for the next 365 days and actually mean it and look to the hand of God. Now let me speak to all of us as a family. We're going to need God's provision to move forward and pioneer. I was thinking about it this week, and maybe you can just join me in my thinking. I was thinking, for example, about Alpha. We're going to invite thousands of people in the fourth largest city in North America, the most multicultural city on earth, that it's full of every other world. Like, we're inviting tens of thousands of people to come sit in bars and bike shops and restaurants and churches to find out if Jesus is okay and right with our busy schedule. Are you joking me? That's harder than water from a rock, literally. And the posture we're going to have to have as we do Alpha, for example, and as you invite friends, which, by the way, it's going to be a quail experience and a man experience every time if anyone says yes, let alone launching East, let alone actually functioning as three sites, as one large church, let alone the money we're going to need just to do this, let alone preparing for the West site. I'm thinking about that. Most of you are like, John, slow down. I can't. I've got to start praying about that. Not just that, on and on. Like we as a church are going to have to continue to say with great expectancy, God, in all of our organization, in our site, doesn't... God be our provider. We need water from rocks. We need quail that show up unexpectedly. We need manna from heaven. We need you to take bitter things and make them sweet. We need your provision in a way we've never seen. Could anyone say amen to that, by the way? Yeah, like really. And so the posture we need this year is to pray. Together in our connect groups and across our whole church and in our gathering times, we need to say, Lord, we need your abundant provision for us to do what you're calling us to do. We'll walk into the wilderness. We'll go to places we've never been before. But man, we need you to show up. We need to show up financially, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. We just, we need God to show up. And here's what I know about my, my boss. When human beings humble themselves and admit that they are not infinite but finite, and they look to God and say, God, would you provide? He loves, loves giving gifts to his children. He loves it because suddenly we're acknowledging we're not God and he is and in that relationship God provides. In other words, self-sufficiency must continue to die as we move forward to pilgrim and pioneer. Here's the last thing and here's where we're going to end. We're going to need God's presence too. I love how in the middle of all of this experience that was taking place, God never left them. And God's presence came closer. And I think we all know that we are going to need the Holy Spirit's presence in our church and in our community in a way we've never seen before. He keeps getting closer. We're going to have to ask ask him to do that more. So with all of that before us, here's what we had prayed about and thought about as a staff. Before we pray together as a community here and all of you up in Port Perry and all of you watching online, to inspire all of us, because we need inspiration, we need joy and hope, to inspire us to obedience, to, to see what God is already up to because God has been involved in so much. We've decided to give our whole church a gift this morning. See, I'm pro-Christmas. I already have to start giving gifts now. And so today for the first time, to really to inspire this church, please hear this, to inspire us to see what God has already done and what God is about to do. For the first time, we're really excited to announce we're releasing uh, this really beautiful C4 magazine. And in this magazine, this is multiple stories of people in our own church that have been radically changed by God in the last few years 
who are already functioning in this pilgrimage pioneering mentality. And every family, so ushers, just start going right now as I'm talking. Every family in this church, we want you to get this and we want you to read this and to be inspired by this because what you're going to see in here is we're not starting brand new. This isn't like we're starting a new year and everything. We're going to, God has already been doing so much of this among us. And so we all know that stories inspire us to keep going. That's why Jesus used stories all the time. And so we're so excited to share this with you because this is our story. And what we're seeing in this little book called Pilgrims and Pioneers is actually going to multiply across our church more and more. And so as you're passing them out, we just want you up in Port Perry as you're getting them too. Would you take one for each family? And by the way, wherever you read, it doesn't matter. Anywhere where you read, we're good with it. But read it. And then take a moment, and here's what I'm going to, here's the ask. When you read it, then would you stop and say, God, would you do this in my heart? Would you do this across the church? Could we do that together? So as you're uh, getting the books, would you all stand with me, all of you up in the balcony, all of you online, wherever you are, would you stand? It's okay, they can keep passing out while you're standing. You can do two things at once. I believe in you. And let's just take a moment to dedicate this year to God with great expectancy Because God is going to do great things and he has done great things. And so uh, I'm going to pray. You can keep your eyes open if you're getting the book. But let's start this together. So God, God of Moses, Father of our Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're about to start a year we are so excited to be involved in. And yet, we've never been here before. So here's the first thing we want to do. Number one, we want to renew our vows with you. So Lord, number one, Uh, Help us never to go back to Egypt. Just, Lord, help us and tell us if we are. Lord, we pray for any person among our community who's actually on their way out. Lord, just grab them now and don't let them go. So could we just say amen to that as a community? We're saying yes to that, to God. And now, Lord, we also pray right now personally, you teach us about daily bread in a culture that doesn't believe in daily bread. Help us, each one of us, to be involved in this daily bread experience where we look to your hand and know your goodness. And Lord, now as a whole community, we're asking you for something we've never had before. Uh, I mean, we're asking you for all sorts of provision, uh, water from rocks, a manna from heaven, quail unexpectedly, like making poisonous things beautiful uh, in such a way that we've never seen as we step out in all these initiatives that we believe you've given us permission. So Lord, we're asking right now that as we start a year with provision, could everyone say amen to that? Lord, hear our prayer. Now lastly, uh, we just want to pray this too. It says in the scriptures that you came close, God, by your spirit, that your presence was among your people. And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, we've prayed this so many times, Holy Spirit, come very close into our church. Would the presence of God grow more and more? We are asking for the presence of God, uh, the Shekinah glory to come among us to do these great things. So Lord, would you bless everything we're doing, everything from worship albums to Alpha to our personal life to East in Bowmanville and on and it goes, come Lord Jesus and do your thing. We're so excited to serve you and pioneer with you and pilgrimage together for you. We do this in the name of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Everyone said... Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.